0: Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government's event on how to engage the public in decisions on infrastructure. I'm Debbie Dorr, I'm the Chief Executive of the Association for Project Management, and we're the chartered body for the project profession. I'm really pleased to support IF, the Institute for Government, today on a topic that is so critically key to the success of projects and how they're delivered. About seven years ago, we did some research that really looked at how that stakeholder engagement was such a critical part early on in the process of project success. And it's been great to see in that time that there's a much wider acceptance of that need for dialogue and for dialogue with a much wider group of people. I think one of the really interesting things for for me is about how we also use technology going forward to really help in that engagement process as we sort of can share really complex data and concepts in a way that will encourage more people um, to get involved and to give their view. So I very much look forward to the discussion today, and we'll hand over to Emma, who's going to chair the panel.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Debbie. Um, welcome, everybody, to the Institute for Government. Um, really delighted to have you here today to talk about um, how to involve uh, citizens in infrastructure decision making. And um, we're delighted to have a fantastic panel to talk about this with us. And um, this is something that the Institute cares a lot about. Last year we published a series of reports looking at infrastructure decision making and how to do it better. Made a series of recommendations and one of the things we pulled out was the need to really engage citizens in these decisions. Both in individual decisions and we can point to how many of those have been challenging. Whether it's airport expansion or high speed railways. But not just in individual decisions in overarching strategy whether it's on infrastructure or other policy issues how do we really involve citizens in these big decisions so they feel like they have a stake and support them when they occur so we've got a great panel to talk about this um, we have phil graham who is the chief executive of the national infrastructure commission the organization that's thinking about that that you know high level infrastructure strategy i've uh, got sir andrew Dillon, the chief executive of the national institute for health um, care and excellence um we've got Ben Page, the chief executive of Ipsos Mori, and Stella Creasy, who is the MP for Walthamstow, and in a former life was the deputy director of Involve, the engagement organization. So everybody you know, has a has a big stake in these issues. Um, Graham, I'm going to come to you first to talk about what you've been doing at the National Infrastructure Commission, and where you're going next um, on deliberation and engaging citizens.
2: OK, very happy to do that. So and the first thing to say is I'm Chief Executive of the National Infrastructure Commission. Um, Before doing that, I was the head of the the team that supported Howard Davies and the Davies Commission on airports policy. Um, And before doing that, um, I was leading the development of the government's HS2 strategy. So coming back to your your particular challenging issues, I've sort of covered covered off most of them. And the approach that we've taken to to public engagement at the commission builds very strongly on the the experience that I had with with those projects um, Next thing to, sort of high-level thing to say is that I think you know, Public engagement is is really important across all forms an effective publication of all all areas of policy But it really makes a difference on infrastructure. I'd say safe for four reasons. And one Everyone has experience of it, but people come at it from very very different perspectives and in particular you need to balance between sort of what you might call national benefits and local impacts and understanding public priorities and perceptions within that is hugely important. Second, although people have very strong opinions on it, the technical nature, the interconnectedness, the the hidden workings with how infrastructure is actually operated and developed are often very opaque, very complex but absolutely crucial to making policy that works. So building public engagement to, in a way that enables a more informed debate about these issues is really, really important. Thirdly, this is something where a long-term perspective is absolutely crucial and a long-term perspective about an uncertain future in which decisions get taken now that do, to a large extent, get locked in for future generations. So public consensus is really important if these, if these decisions are going to be taken well and if they are going to last and taking lasting decisions has often been a particular challenge for the UK in this regard. Um, And finally, as I alluded to at the beginning, infrastructure requires (coughs) trade-offs. And if ministers and decision-makers are going to make effective trade-offs around which a consensus is going to be built, they need to understand the way in which the public might approach those trade-offs. It doesn't necessarily mean that they need to agree in every respect, but you need to have a broad sense of what the public view is in order to do that effectively. My experience with the, the approach that I took when I joined the Commission, building on where I came to with, with the Airports Commission and, and HS2, with, with those projects, um, although there are plenty of criticisms and probably some valid criticisms of the way we did it, we tried very hard to engage, we put a lot of effort into it, a lot of resource went into it, but my strong impression coming out of it was that we engaged essentially with two groups. We engaged with the industries that cared about these projects, and generally with those industries at pretty senior level, um, not necessarily very far down the chain. And we engaged with a subset of the public that had very strong opinions about them. In 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 terms of numbers, that's generally a subset of the public who really didn't like them. But there was usually a smaller subset who felt that these were the best things. Possible, But what we didn't do was get an effective sense of what the the broader public view of these issues were. So when we started out with the National Infrastructure Commission, and particularly as we began carrying out our first National Infrastructure Assessment, which is a sort of cross-cutting review of infrastructure priorities, I was determined that we were going to find a way of getting a better sense of what overall public opinion of these issues, and not just those of an interested subset, however important those particular views are, and we worked with Britain Thinks initially and then with with Ipsos Mori thereafter to run a set of, to carry out some to to run a broad social research program involving various kinds of polling but also a set of focus groups um, run all around the country, so in cities, in rural areas, in small towns, in villages, on the coast, um, in the north, in the Midlands, in the south, etc., et to, to get a sense of, of how this fitted together. And one of the things that was striking about that was, certainly to me, was, was the consistency of, of view that came out of those. And I think I learnt in terms of how I think about infrastructure policy. I was going to say three things. I'll add in, I'll add in four at the end. A fourth at the end. So, so the first one is that at the moment, it feels like there is a real opportunity. <coughs> to actually build some consensus and to make some progress on infrastructure infrastructure policy. I mean, right now is very difficult for other reasons, but when we did this work um, early next year, there was a real sense that came out of it, and the the guys from Ipsos Mori said this, that when they had done a similar set of workshops for an industry body a couple of years previously, the first question that was asked in every case was why don't we spend this money on schools and hospitals? And it was interesting that that didn't come out from the work that we did. There was a sense that infrastructure was should be seen as a priority, that we were dropping behind, that there was a real case for investment and for action to do something about this. So the first thing was that there was an opportunity. The second is that it is, in thinking about how to tackle that opportunity it's very difficult to engage the public on... Tra- on how you make trade-offs, and in particular how you make trade-offs within a set budget. And it was very clear that people almost always reached first to the idea that, well, if the company's just made less profit, then we'd solve the problem. And I think there is an argument within that, that if the co- that you want to get the balance of how things are paid for right. The company's making less profit may well be a good idea, good way to do that. But given the scale of cost of infrastructure schemes, that in itself is not going to to tackle the issue completely. Um, And the third, which was probably my biggest lesson, and it may well be that that some members of the panel knew this already, but it came through very strongly for me, is that I would say policymakers and members of the public often just don't think about these issues through the same frameworks. And in particular, I would say, to, to, to hark back to my my degree, I did, a, I did a philosophy degree. Policymakers are generally utilitarians. We think about the greatest welfare for the greatest number, and the public are generally Kantians. They think about the categorical imperative. They think, is it fair that this thing should happen for an individual? If I can think of an individual for whom this is unfair, then this is not something I want to see. And unless we can think about ways of sort of bridging some of those div- that divide and actually not abandoning the welfare argument but making sure that we think it through from, a, from the sort of the fairness lens as well, then we're probably not going to make progress. And, and the final thing I learned was just that if you ever want to make progress on your policy get David Attenborough behind it. Um, <laughs> in every single one of these, these events that we did, wherever they were, the first thing that came up was plastic in the ocean and what that meant for recycling. And that, that, you know that is a, a very fair point. These voices are you want a voice in the country that's trusted mm. that's probably the first one that you, that you turn to. So this was a really great pro- process for us and what was I, I entered this social, we entered this social research process not knowing what we would get out of it, but actually it fed very directly into some of the decisions that the, that the commissioners took, particularly on actually particularly on water and flood di- flood defenses, where the recommendations that we came to around higher standards of resilience and around moving from a sort of value for money-based. Approach to allocating funding to the idea of a national standard for flood defence were driven very much by this idea of, of sort of trust and fairness. Um, so going forward, uh, I want to do I want to do more of this. Um, and going forward, because I because I'm very keen on jumping on bandwagons, and there's a there's a very important bandwagon sort of generating pace at the moment around this in other areas, drawing upon the Irish experience, we're looking at how we can go beyond social research and do a piece of deliberative democracy to look at some of the the infrastructure challenges we face. And, And the one that we are intending to focus on is how we tackle congestion and how we pay for our roads going forward, because this seems to me a classic example of this sort of welfare versus fairness debate. The welfare economists say, well, it is obvious, you, know, you can tackle congestion by charging for road use, and it is obvious that you should do so, because the benefits that my model creates um, are, are huge and are much greater than the benefits that any other option of building roads and so on can come up. So why would you not do this? This is a, no, this is a no-brainer. Um, but the public, they see it as a no-brainer, the public see it as a non-starter, <coughs> because it is all too easy in their mind, I think, to come up with... You know, the individual or the situation where they're, they're, it just feels like this is unfair. And what I want to do is to see whether, by, by starting to look at congestion more broadly in the round, by starting to have, have a conversation about how that affects people, but also have a conversation about how changes in the way we, vehicle, we we use and own vehicles, changes in the way technology operates might change some of those calculus calculuses. Can you have those we might sort of move towards a a, a more more informed debate about this. So so that's where we are. We are are increasingly sort of evangelists for creative, for interesting forms of of public engagement in this sphere. I don't think that will ever get rid of the need for structured, formal public consultation of the kind that, that sort of more more, more, more processes that are closer to the, to, to the very decision-making element, like HS2, like, like uh, so the pl- other planning processes are going to need. But I think when you step back to an earlier place, I think there are probably more interesting ways to engage the public and ways to get a better answer, and that's what we want to explore as a body that sits a little bit further away and is, is providing advice and recommendations, but not taking the decisions itself.
1: Thank you, Phil. Um, Particularly for the unexpected foray into moral philosophy. Um, Andrew, a <laughs> Andrew, I'm going to come to you next, and um, I think I want to hear particularly from you uh, about your experiences in another sector. So, you know, as the chief executive of Nice, what have you done on um, public engagement, on deliberation? I know that Nice has a citizens' council, for instance, and what do you think your experience could mean for sectors like infrastructure?
3: Sure. Well, um, for those of you who don't know, NICE uh, provides advice to the health and care system on ways to get good outcomes from the use of interventions and different forms of practice, um, but also advises the systems and those who've got stewardship responsibility on the most efficient use of resources. So we're interested in effectiveness and cost effectiveness, and I mentioned that right at the outset because it's this issue around cost effectiveness and judgments about value for money, which are the most controversial aspects of the work that we do, the stuff that sometimes gets picked up in the media, um, on which our engagement with the public is really very important, for reasons I'll come on to. And we've, we've been at it for 20 years, it's our 20th birthday this year, so we're all grown up um, and ready to leave home, go off and see the world. We, when we were set up, it was very much with the expectation that we would do what we do um, in the public gate, so that we would be completely transparent about the approach that we take to gathering an evidence base and interpreting it, and then we go out and explain and defend the decisions that we took. And that in order to do that um, effectively, we needed to involve everybody who's going to be affected by the decisions that we took. Um, and that obviously included everybody who uses the health and care system, so the public as well as lots of other stakeholders in the professional groups uh, inside the health and care system, the life sciences industries that have an interest in our work on technology evaluation. So there's a real expectation that we were going to do it, but we didn't need to be encouraged. It was the obvious thing to do. The decisions that we take have such an impact on the nature of the offer that um, initially when we started just the NHS, but now the broader health and care system made, that you can't do that in any serious way without uh, talking to the people ultimately who are paying for the service that you're advising on and who ultimately will be affected by decisions that you take. So we engage with the public in two principal ways. We talk to, we, we involve the public in the development of the methods and processes that we use to interrogate the evidence bases that we look at to address the questions that we're dealing with. What do we do with this new drug? How do we approach um, the most effective way of sequencing treatment for type (coughs) 2 diabetes? Uh, What what are the best arrangements for effectively managing the transition of people from hospital care into uh, residential homes? All sorts of things that we look at. and we need to write methodologies that enable our independent advisory committees, the groups that we set up to answer these questions, um, to look at the evidence base and to use a rules-based approach to interpreting it and formulating their recommendations. Um, and then the second way is that we involve uh, the public in the process of making those individual decisions. Um, so we have those advisory committees, all of them have um, public representatives on them, as well as people who come from the health and care system, people who come with particular evaluative skills from academia, and those who come from the life sciences industry if we're looking at life sciences industry products. And one of the ways in which we've um, uh, uh, used colleagues from the public to help us develop our methods is through the Citizens Council. This was a a group that was active between 2002 and 2015. We haven't convened the council, although it still actually exists uh, as a facility that we can draw on since 2015. Now that period, it looked at 18 different questions. Everything from the extent to which age should be a factor um, in making decisions about uh, whether or not an intervention should be available and in what circumstances. Um, What are the circumstances in which our advisory committees might uh, vary from the standard threshold we use to determine cost-effectiveness. NICE uses quality-adjusted life years to determine value for money, and we have an incremental cost-effectiveness threshold Um, up to which, broadly speaking, our advisory committees are encouraged to support the use of interventional practice, above which generally, They don't, because at that point they cease to be a cost-effective use of NHS resources. Um, We've asked the uh, the council to look at the nature of innovation as it exists in the health system, Um, how it should be defined and how innovation should be weighted and played into the decisions that we take. Um, They helped us puzzle through the interesting and infinitely boring concept of discounting. Um, and how I nice should use that in circumstances where benefits uh, arise over a very short period of time, but particularly where benefits uh, play out over a very long period of time, um, but in circumstances where the upfront costs are... Uh, where the costs in effect, is paid up upfront. So how do you work out that, and uh, in what circumstances uh, might we be encouraged to vary uh, our approach from the standard Treasury green book rules um, around that. There are lots of questions and interesting questions that we put to the council and the way it operates is that we recruit 30 people from the general public. These are people who respond to advertisements placed by an independent organisation that runs the council on our behalf. Um, They're people who've got no connection with NICE, no connection with the life sciences industries, no connection with organised patient advocacy, don't work in the health and care system. They they don't come with the baggage that are associated with those particular roles, uh, but they come as members of the public who've got an interest in what the health and care system does and therefore an interest in what NICE is uh, recommending that the system should do in individual cases. And it's a deliberative approach. uh, So we started off by requiring them to stay in a hotel for three days, that narrowed down uh, that shortened over, over the 15, over the years that we've been operating the group. Um, but essentially it's the same thing. There's a briefing for the council on the question: what's the problem? Why, why are we asking this? What is it that we're uncertain about? Um, and then the council is puzzles through that, um, talking to each other, uh, drawing in experts when they need to do that. Um, discussing and formulating the decisions that they take. And the decisions that they take, the recommendations, the report they come up with, isn't binding on NICE. It's not policy, we don't have to follow it. But what it does is uh, to provide a really important input into the development of our methods, we can be much more confident about how we advise our advisory committees, our independent advisory committees, about what to do in circumstances Uh, in which they're uncertain. And we need to do that for our advisory committees because um, there's a point at which the science runs out. Um, Anyway, the science is never complete. The evidence base is never complete. Um, But it's not a formula-driven approach to work out whether or not we use a new drug or in what circumstances. Um, The evidence may be very compelling um, in terms of the clinical effectiveness of the treatment. Um, but if the decision is challenged by um, an intervention that's close to or perhaps just above uh, the cost effectiveness threshold that NICE might normally use, what circumstances should we uh, say we'll do something different? And the advice that we've got from the public just puts us in a much better position to give a steer to those advisory committees on how they should work in those circumstances.
1: Thank you Andrew I come back with lots of questions um, on what nice does uh, when we come to Q a ben i 'm going to come to you next. you spent a lifetime uh, doing <laughs> public engagement consultations yeah. deliberation and um, what can infrastructure learn from from your experience Well I
4: think it's, it's not it's hard and expecting grat if you want friends as somebody once said, get a dog instead um, but I think our, our take on this, having done both things like HS2 and much more local things, I think the first is this need to make it meaningful for people. So if you ask people what they'd like to see built, if you talk about infrastructure, you have immediately turned off half the punters. If you talk about very specific things, you'll get a very a very different response. So, make it meaningful we've just heard about a very good example of deliberation and we've done things like that on what sort of cities do we want to live in in the future where you're getting people to really engage with visualizations different scenarios but i think the one of the challenges with deliberation is that is the one of scale so even when you do it the people who are involved learn all about it but if you then have to sell it to people who are not informed there, are, there can still be major challenges, because they haven't been through that process. We were once doing stuff for a county council on um, the budget, and of course people arrive at the county hall, we got 100 people there, and they're saying, well, this is a lot of, lot of money wasted around here, look at this huge building. We can then, then after the efficiency savings and, and austerity has been explained for, by the CFO for an hour or two, at the end of the day, after a day of deliberation, the whole group says, we'll pay more tax. And um, the county council says, well, how long would it get to get the population of this county to attend one of these sessions? You know? so, um, but that's the problem, because meanwhile, everybody else out there believes local government wastes money and all the rest. So it's, it, that's one of the challenges. But that's not a reason for not doing it, because the process of deliberation is extremely useful in understanding how people reach judgments, Um, If you're if you're doing it carefully which you can then use in communications because you'll know that this particular issue uh, drives drives the um, You know drives the argument so for example on housing developments. We've seen Massive local opposition and then you say so this area needs more housing and jobs 60% are opposed You add four words to that sentence, which you know from the deliberation so young people can stay and suddenly, you go. The, the views are completely changed because you've made you've made this emotional connection to why you're suggesting we actually need to build more housing. It's not for people. So make the case for new people. Are very conservative, um, rightly. You know, the Eiffel Tower. If we'd done deliberation about it, would not exist. Uh, Probably the London Eye might not either, and now they're quite popular, Um, and that's important. Define your audience. Um, Very often there's a lot of developer-led consultation which involves sort of sticking leaflets through boxes, holding a few exhibitions, and then saying they've consulted. And I think you do need to be clear about whether you're just going to talk to activists. And there's nothing wrong with talking. You need to talk to activists anyway but um, are you trying just to talk to self-selecting groups of people who want to come and tell you things, and more of them, as we've just heard, will tend to be anti than in favor, or do you want a representative view of the community, which may include a lot of people who just actually don't care that much? Um, but again, they're not the same. So be clear about that. Listen and lead. Um, we've got 63% of the British who say we should we should listen more to local communities, even if it means delays. Now, given that we started talking about the expansion of Heathrow or London airports in the late 1960s, I can, you know, a, I mean, we can argue about whether we really whether we really mean that. But it reflects the this sense of being um, done to. Um, but and framing's really important. Consider the message very, very carefully. We're too we're far too technocratic. Um, The people leading these things are all rational. Uh, Communications are about emotion. The the Brexit campaign has just shown us that beautifully. Mm -hmm. Lots of rational arguments on one side, take back control on the other. One worked rather better than the other. And if you're gonna get people to speak up, Choose a profession like engineers, but hopefully an engineer who can communicate, uh, and not politicians. Sorry, uh, uh, sorry, Stella. Um, but you know, real, real. I think a real, at the same time, a real willingness to see something happen. So we've seen, if you look at the British Social attitude Study, a reversal in terms of opposition to house building in this country, as we've now got the highest level of anxiety about housing we've seen since and housing supply uh, we've we've pretty much ever seen. Uh, The the overall level of anxiety about housing is now the same as it was during the housing crash of the early 70s, which just one or two people in this room might be old enough to remember, but a completely different scenario. You've got eight eight to one in Britain saying that we're not doing enough on infrastructure and 24 to one saying it's absolutely vital for growth. So there there is willingness to do things, but that doesn't mean to say I'm particularly volunteering to offer to go and build things all over a field nearby and Expect everybody to be happy at the end.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ben. Um, Stella, I'm coming to you uh, last but not least. Um, I'd be interested to hear about your experiences involved, but perhaps more recently as a politician. I know that in Walthamstow you tend to run public discussions and engagements um, on everything from Syria to Brexit, um, and indeed have suggested, suggested a citizens assembly on, on Brexit, so how do you think um, what you've experienced can um, you know, have lessons for infrastructure and beyond?
5: Yes, I suppose uh, by way of background as somebody, I mean my academic background is in the psychology of participation, I used to help run Involve, I'm now a member of parliament, I was a local councillor, so you could say I have gone from being a uh, gamekeeper Maybe to... Sounds it's a pheasant in some yeah. of these circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to be honest, listening to this conversation, yeah. I know exactly why my inbox is full of angry people. Right. Yeah. And it is. I mean, in, in yeah. the last eight years since I got elected in 2010, the anger yeah. is now there. People haven't trusted politicians yeah. for centuries. Go and it's look the at worse. the Hogarth pictures. What they now think is even if I could trust you, could you really do anything about it at all? It's a crisis of efficacy. Actually, what gets done? The world is changing around me. People are building big things. They're trying to, and it's all happening to me. Um, And the other thing that's happened in the last eight years is that every, well, most of the messages that I get about big infrastructure things in my community start with everybody I know agrees with me. (laughs) So, there is a filtering of the idea, because we're not good at talking to each other as a a country. We're not good at talking to each other as communities. Um, And actually, within that, I can understand why, because frankly, what I hear is people not wanting to engage. I hear people wanting to manage. They want to manage what they think is a criticism that might be coming. So, I'm here today, perhaps counterintuitively, as somebody to make the case for the power and energy and creativity that comes from actually genuinely working with the public to co-create things, to actually make big choices and big decisions. I have great faith, which might seem a hard thing to argue right now, given what's going on in Parliament, in the capacity of the British public not only to make good decisions, but to be good citizens and to want good things to happen in their local community. And I say that because the corollary of the situation that we're in at the moment is that people use MPs as human shields. I've got to the point now where I say to a lot of public service organisations in Walthamstow that I will not have private meetings with them because what they want to do is brief me about something so that I then go back and take the brickbats that come from the local community about something they might think is a difficult choice. I refuse to do that because I think my community is not children. They are people capable of engaging in difficult conversations, whether it is about the future of healthcare in my local community, whether it is about the future of my local town centre and housing. But if you treat people like toddlers, Are you surprised when the reaction you get back is to throw your toys out of the pram? Um, In that circumstance, then for me, I've always had a belief that it's about you should blame the process, not the public, if you don't get the answer that you want. Because actually, if you haven't worked with them, if you haven't treated them with the respect that you would want as somebody, if you don't see an issue as too difficult, too complicated for mere mortals to understand, then you do get the reaction you get. What does that mean then? In terms of how you move forward, first of all, it means you should never have a process where you're only offering people a binary choice. And that's one of the problems we have in Parliament right now. I have an I or a no lobby to walk into when most of the decisions, most of the issues we're dealing with are complex. So if you only offer people acceptance or rejection, then you either get the people who want to come for a fight or the people who don't want to turn up at all. If you take nothing away from this meeting, never ever run a session where you come with PowerPoint. Because who here wants to sit through (laughs) hours and hours of slides being told something they already know? Um, If you want to do creation with people, you don't ask a question that you're not prepared to hear the answer from and react to it. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree, but it does mean you have to engage. It also means that you shouldn't segment people. So often what you get is, oh yeah, well, we've gone to speak to the activists, but then there's the silent majority As somehow, it's a very pejorative way of t- talking about both groups of people. Um, in my local community are people, yes, who are more willing to sit through long meetings than others, but all of them have interesting contributions to make. As a local MP, I've never had a good idea myself but I've been able to build processes to hear what people in the community have to say, whether it is on issues around how you tackle the impact of austerity in my local community, whether it is on issues around knife crime, whether it is indeed on issues around infrastructure, and then even on things like Brexit. In order to do that, people do need to be able to interact with people who they think they might disagree with. And that means you need a process where it's not about one side winning or losing, but it is about the priorities that you set as a community and asking people to say, Okay, out of all of these things, what would you pick above the others and giving some feedback on it? Um, what does that look like in practice? So, at a local level for me, when we've had healthcare reorganisation, an incredibly difficult subject, and I frankly forced my local CCG to come and meet with local residents to talk about where they might be moving and indeed closing <coughs> doctor surgeries. And what was more transformative was watching the CCG listen to local residents say, well, look, that's up a hill, so of course we wouldn't go up a hill, but actually if you were able to move to this one, we would accept reduced hours because we know we could get to it. The public have information that you don't have access to. If you work in a different way, it will help you make better decisions, not them understand why the decision you've made is the best for them. What does that mean at a national level? Look, Parliament is in gridlock, because you've got people who have very strong opinions about Brexit and a process that is binary. Actually, one of the reasons why we've been proposing a citizens' assembly is not because we think those big decisions, those big strongly-held views about whether you leave or remain will change, but because it is about trying to say, rather than this being a yes-no decision all the time, what is it you value most? What is it should guide us? And therefore, what are you prepared to compromise on? And what citizens' assemblies do is they treat everybody as an equal, everybody as having something to offer, and they help politicians, who, as I say, at the moment, tend to use as a human shield, to become what they've wanted to do and what most of us go into this job to do, which is to be advocates for the better society you want to create, because they create an opportunity where you have a genuine conversation about a policy issue and a genuine conversation about what the choices are and how people would value them, that can then inform what you do next. So I sit here today to say not that the way in which we work now is good, to absolutely agree that nobody should do consultation, because if anybody's got a realisation about why the traditional forms of consultation don't work, they should just go and look at what Nick Clegg did, where he said, we want to consult on what government should be doing, and people sent them recipes for beef casserole. (laughs) (laughs) But I am here to bang the drum for genuine participative democracy, because it is transformative, And frankly, if you look at the counterfactual with how we're doing things now, if there was ever a time to start genuinely taking back control to the British people and not seeing it as a fight between decision makers and the public, but about that co-creation, it is now. I fear very much, not just on infrastructure, but on our capacity as a country to move at all, if we don't change the way we make decisions but I also sit here as a turkey who has voted for Christmas at a local and a national level to tell you it's possible to persuade everybody to
1: be a vegetarian. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Stella, and to the rest of the panel. Stella, you make a really interesting distinction between Mm. um, managing public opinion, consultation, and co-creation, the act of really thinking about you know, what you want to see in listening to the public. And I just wanted to ask the rest of the panel before we come out to the audience, to what extent do you think at the moment government is doing the latter, is actually doing co-creation, is listening to people and actually changing decisions on the basis of what they've heard? And indeed, could you point to any examples where you think that has happened? Well,
2: I mean, I... I, I would... Um, so I have two thoughts. One, just... just an, ex- a, 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 I think a very strong... Ag- a very clear example of that, though probably not the one that you were thinking of, was my experience of being involved in the HS2 consultation, where two things got very clearly joined into one process, and it was incredibly difficult and incredibly and, and I think yeah, I think we did the best job we could in the circumstances, um, but equally I don't think it ever felt very, very satisfactory on either side. And that was, th- that was in the sense that we were both managing and engaging. We were consulting on exactly your point, we were consulting on a completely binary question about whether the government should ha- whether the country should have a high-speed railway line or not. And as part of the same process, trying to consult on a whole set of very, very far from binary questions about what the design of that line should be. And, and what I took away from that was that that kind of engagement, coming back to Ben's point about engineers versus, versus uh, sort of officials and politicians, could have worked, and in and in some cases did work very well in terms of in terms of the, the 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 how do you design this? Getting away from the binary question piece, I was I was involved in sessions where we were stood in the field. We were stood in a tent in uh, in in um, right, Missenden, and you know someone got ta- one of the engineers got taken by a woman to stand in her front in in her her upstairs bedroom and look at the difference for her of taking the line on this side of the little, the little hump and taking the line on that side. And that, you know, it wasn't perfect. There was a lot of antagonism, but that generated, exactly what you're saying, that generated new information that the, the team developing this didn't have. It led to a better, a better project, and that was great. But the, the managing process was, <coughs> was entirely unsatisfactory because we were trying to... We were, we were saying that we were having... A, uh, a, a sort of open discussion about about the case for this line and you know we did have an open mind we you could have you could have you could have said no but we weren't presenting any option other than have it or don't have it and it was coming at a very late stage in the process when the government had already put a lot a lot of itself on the line to to to, to try and get there so so you know, ultimately it turned into something that was highly charged and antagonistic but didn't really tell anyone on either side anything that they didn't know when they, when they set out. And I think what, what, I, what I have been trying to do, and I'm sure Stella's, I take Stella's criticism, is just move it a little bit further back in the process each time we've gone through this. So at least when I did the Airports Commission work, we went out to consult local communities and to, and to carry out the broader consultation at the point at which we had a short list, but at a point at which the members of the Commission generally, genuinely had a completely open mind as to which of the right answers, which the right answer from that short shortlist might be. And with the National Infrastructure Commission, we've tried to go a step further back, perhaps just because we exist a step further back in the process, and get away from talking about projects and policies and so on, and actually just talk about priorities and what people care about and what people, what people want about from their infrastructure. And then, as part of a second stage, sort of trying to explore what that might mean in terms of, in terms of what you might do. So, I think I, I, I completely agree with the sentiment. I, th- I, think, I think the bit of it that is difficult in the infrastructure sector, which is the bit that I hope actually the establishment of the National Infrastructure Commission will help with, is A, a because, the, because these are such. Contentious decisions, and my impression is that the, the ministers haven't wanted to actually go out and talk about them until they've worked out what they think the answer is and what all the arguments are. But also, just because they're such, such, such processes that take such a long time, and we've been so bad at sticking to a stable strategy, we never start until too late. And actually, if the National Infrastructure Commission can buy building some consensus around this by creating a great, greater degree of stability by asking some of these, by consulting earlier in the process can actually sort of tackle some of that and, and can allow you to have, the not to be in a position where by the time you've decided that you might want to build Crossrail 2, if you don't start it tomorrow you're never going to have it in time, but can actually be having that conversation two or three years beforehand and we might, I hope there's a chance that you might do do some of this better. but. Uh, but, I mean, there is always going to be, there are always going to be some within your organisation and who, who, who you always have to fight against who really think that the, the, the correct outcome of any of these processes is to be allowed to carry on doing what it was that you thought you were going to do already and fighting that and fighting that, I suspect, within yourself as much as within, within those who you work with is really important.
1: Anybody else on
4: and I just, this, the reason consultation
2: gets a bad name is because you know
4: too often the, the decision's been made and we're now we aren't actually so we're we're not consulting about the decision we're consulting about perhaps how it's made and that's you've just made that point very well and that happens all the time in big and small situations sometimes we get dragged into that um, but I think and the the other thing is the public won't necessarily agree. And it's hard for the, it's hard for people, whether whatever, whether you're looking at technology, architecture, or infrastructure, for people to imagine what things will be like in the future, um, and that. That's, so that's not, that's not saying we shouldn't do it, but in particular, it, it is difficult, and sometimes somebody will have to decide. And ultimately, that's why we live in a representative democracy, because we, we have you to, to, to make those decisions for us. Often, decisions we, we, we give decisions to politicians that we're actually unwilling to make ourselves. I mean, I find when I'm doing budgetary decision making that you might find up to half the public, when it's really difficult choices, will actually refuse to answer. Because they don't like to have to, they don't want to be confronted with the choices that politicians have to make, and I think we, we, we should also acknowledge that actually. But I mean, absolutely, people will come. You know, you can you can build those conversations, but let's be honest about what they're actually about and what we can what we're actually allowing people to influence, and that seems to me to be part of the the challenge.
5: Yeah, I think there's two different things here. When I talk about co-creation, one of some of the best transformative projects that I've seen at a local level in my community have come from people being given the power and the responsibility, not just to come and be a bystander and make a decision, but actually then build things themselves. So, for example, uh, five years ago, I said to people, give me seven days of your time over the course of the year, and we will tackle the impact of austerity on our local community, and the... Ideas that they came up with were not just a food bank, but it was also about teaching people to make healthy food on a low-income budget, using the local market to go and buy food. It was about loneliness projects, all sorts of things that I would have never thought about that then also influenced what the local authority was doing with some very limited funds that came from actually giving people that responsibility. That is something different from what you're talking about, which is one of the things I try to do as a local MP, is show my homework. Because you're right, not everybody is going to agree with the ultimate decisions that you have to make. But one of the things that we do in our politics right now is somehow suggest... In in psychology, we call it the the quiz show thesis, which is that somehow the people who who, who stage a quiz, and maybe Jeremy Clarkson now is disproving this, um, are, are intelligent because they know all the answers. And the idea that I would know all the answers and somehow I am privy to information that my local community couldn't deal with is one of the challenges here. So actually, on issues like Syria, I have set out for local residents they don't have to agree with me but i think it's really important to have that commitment that there is no special requirement that being elected means that you are somehow cleverer than everybody else and somehow privy to things and, and i think one of the challenges here in the kind of decide announce defend process is it acts as if if you were, and I, it's interesting with nice and the work that you're doing on on drugs look people understand that there are difficult choices to be made they understand that resources are not infinite they also recognise, uh, we've got people in Waltham, so we've got 400 people now who are in a league with each other, competing on the number of steps they can take every day as part of how we're tackling diabetes. Having healthcare conversations with those people in that environment is a different concept because it's not about them just being people that things are done to by an anonymous organisation which they've gratefully voted yeah, exactly. for their, yeah, yeah. their benefactor, Miss Creasy, whose job it is to then wave a magic wand. I, I didn't join the mafia. <laughs> but people will sometimes come to me like I have these magic powers. Showing people your homework yeah. helps to dispel the myth that there is actually a magic solution out there and be part of those conversations.
4: Just one, one thing, which is just to build on something Stella said, one of the things I've seen, particularly in NHS reconfigurations, which also get highly uh, exciting when we're going to close hospitals or move them, but one of the things that's distinguished some of the more successful ones is having nothing that can be FOI'd because everything... Is in the public domain, and so then this suspicion that somehow there's a, a hidden agenda, the secret information, and so that's something that has been effective. And actually, you know, the, the concern and anxiety about transparency, um, you know, the, the, the solution, hiding it is worse than worse mm. than putting it out there because there is nothing to FOI. Then you know they can't say that you know people we've been unclear or haven't been honest and open.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know you want to throw them to questions, but just here's a quick thought. We've been talking a bit like the public is some kind of homogenous thing, that you access it and it's the same ever. In reality, of course, it's not. Unless you use a deliberative approach, like a citizens' assembly or a citizens' council, and very carefully uh, assemble a group which is, as far as possible, representative of the community, what you're dealing with, and certainly it's true for us, are interest groups so we deal with the organized um, patient uh, advocacy they
4: are the voice of all patients so they tell me
3: well of course they they would and indeed (laughs) they they are very good at representing the interests of uh, the particular group of the particular communities uh, that they're set up to uh advocate for uh and and many of them are very good at doing that but we have to remember that we've got, a, we've got a voice over here which is very specifically about the thing that we're talking about. But we have a responsibility to everybody else who's relying on the health and care system for their care and balancing those two things is quite tricky. When we're looking at a new drug, we don't hear from the public, we hear from the groups that are involved uh, in representing people with prostate cancer, or with Alzheimer's, or with multiple sclerosis, or whatever it is, and it's a very important, very important signal, a very important voice, but it's not the voice of the public, and that's why we need to try and do two things, which is to try and get our methodology informed by the public's view about how nice, in my case, goes about its work but then to make sure we do talk to people who are intimately involved in the specific issue when we're looking at individual um, diseases or drugs.
5: Can I come back on that just because I have one concern. So one of the things I've seen that's evolved on public engagement is this idea of panels of people (laughs) And actually one of the challenges I see at a local level is that the, the champions who are chosen, particularly in healthcare, tend to be the people who are more palatable necessarily than the people who are authentic. So I think you're right to, to, to want to try and say, look, okay, there's a particular group of people who have a particular interest in something. There is a real risk that that is used to exclude dissenting voices. And actually that for me goes back to the process that you use to make decisions and how you can have both in it you, rather you, than you the kind of, oh, we've got to use a panel but we've appointed sure. those people. If you appoint people, then of course people think they're suspicious about who they are.
3: Yeah, but you, but you, so what you do is you have to balance that with public consultation. So it isn't just, you're not just relying exclusively on that group of people with, their, with the baggage that they might come with. You expose the decision to wider consultation. Sure, yeah. You, you tend still to get the vested interest, but you've got a better chance of getting a broader community view on it. And also, the other way of handling that is not to just handpick people you like, but to, as we do, put out to open adversism the opportunity to come and sit on our advisory.
1: At that but i need to take the two questions. Uh, <laughs> questions. So I'm going to take three questions at a time. If you could um, tell me your name and where you're from, and that would be great. OK, I'm going to go um, right to the back, um, the front here, the front here. So
6: if you just start. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Tony Travers from the LSE. Uh, in, buried in the question is the implication that, particularly when it comes to physical infrastructure, forget some of the more local and health-type decisions that are also being discussed, the idea that if it were possible to do this better, it would be easier to deliver projects more pop- in a more popular way and more quickly. And one of the things that always strikes me about discussions, particularly about su- substantial infrastructure, including some local infrastructure, is that obviously the, the costs are borne by a small number of people in the short term, and the benefits are to a much larger number of people potentially in the longer term. And with that in mind, there are rarely effective ways of compensating those who are going to have to put up with the short term consequences in order that others may benefit in the medium and longer term. And it seems to me the, un- the incapacity of the system to provide greater rewards for those who have to put up with short term dislocation is a significant barrier to delivering, certainly larger projects. It doesn't work for everything, but larger projects.
1: Thank you. And then, sorry, can we go right to the back? Um, woman in the green jumper. Thank you. Thank you, um, Francesca from Um I, I thought there were some very interesting um, sort of topics and um, things put forward that really could do with development. But one of the things that I'm interested in is how the concept of trust and building the public trust. So, regardless of whether you're presenting a binary choice or however you present this consultation, I think there is a real um, kind of decline in public trust in organisations that are presenting these um, big infrastructure projects for consultation, and, and it's ha- I'm curious how you would approach that particular element, because if you build trust, you'll probably get more people involved in the consultation, because if you don't have the trust, people are like, well, I won't, won't engage because I don't, I don't trust in what they're saying, or I don't trust they're gonna deliver, or that similar sort of discussion point. Great, thank you, and then just here at the front.
3: Hi, um, <clears throat> I'm Tom Saunders, um, Head of Public Engagement at UK Research and Innovation. Um, I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on how do you get uh, senior buy-in for meaningful public engagement. So uh, you know, a lot of public engagement happens, but how do you get senior politicians and decision makers to, to really believe that it should be a core part of the process? I think a lot of it, as currently happens, is a, a report is handed to someone to say, here's what the public think. Mm-hmm. but Does that change minds and do you have other ways that that you've gone about it in the past
1: great thank you so we've got compensation trust and getting senior buy-in who wants to start well okay so
4: on on, i'm I'm just going to agree with tony that the you know short-term compensation for long-term benefits clearly there's more that we could do and there's clearly an issue Particularly around some housing developments and new new communities, about being clear about what infrastructure will be there, and that, that where the housing goes in first and the infrastructure then follows on later is, you know, deep deeply problematic. So I, I just agree with that, Francesca from Arab. I mean, trust is not in uh, in terminal decline. Uh, there is some evidence that trust in large institutions uh, is falling, but we're actually got a report coming out in April called "The Truth About Trust" because it's. It's, it's more static than you might think. Well, and actually, in trust, trust in scientists, professors, uh, has actually all been rising. Uh, trust in science is definitely rising in this country, despite anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists, etc. Trust in politicians is the, absolutely the same as in 1983. Well, not very good, but it's not got any worse. And I mean, I think in terms of, um, in terms of persuading politicians, I mean, I've worked with you know, ministers since 1998 on this sort of thing. And it, it does seem to be a sort of, you either got it, you either believe in it or you don't. It has to be almost a sort of spiritual thing. I'm not sure I've ever convinced somebody who's really anti this, or I can remember a cabinet office minister saying, "I'm you know, I'm not going to build the gallows to hang myself on, i.e. I do some consultation that's going to show that what I'm about to do is unpopular or something. So I th- it, it is hugely, I think there are lots of things one can do to reassure them that it's not actually dangerous and that you can, so I wouldn't like the word manage it uh, and hear different voices, etc. But um, it does seem to be a spiritual thing. It's either in the water or it's not. I, I, I haven't I haven't seen a convert, but maybe somebody else has. Um,
2: well, uh, I, on the on the compensation point, I mean, I think we all agree. I'm I'm not sure that's one. I, there's a, there's a sort of penumbra where. Where potentially engagement may make a bigger difference, but if your house is going to get knocked down or you're going to, or you know the, the the number of planes that are going to that are going to fly over you that are going to take off the runway two hundred yards down the road is going to double, then I think you 've got to have a different solution to that public engagement is not going to solve that problem you 've just got to be open and honest about that, and I think you 're right we should there is prob- there is more more to be done to strengthen the compensation to sort of approaches, I don't, I'm not sure it's a compensation regime, I think it's as much as anything, the attitude and the approaches that are taken. Um, so, so I agree with that. Um, on, the, on the trust point, I mean my, sorry, I'm going to make this very parochial and about me. Um, my, my hope is that an organisation like the National Infrastructure Commission in infrastructure, a little bit I think like NICE has, to, a, to, to an extent in, in medicine can and should be looking to try and bridge that gap by I mean, getting to the, getting to the point where you have an organization that doesn't come from a party political standpoint that is has a particular sort of mandate to to build consensus to look at the evidence to engage widely etc to, to support the, the difficult infrastructure decisions that, that politicians are going to have to take. But, but the crucial point about that is, I mean, whether it's us, whether it's nice, whether it's anyone else, we're never going to get that trust unless we do it properly. And also, to some degree, unless people can see that we are doing it properly. But I, I think I'd always put that as sort of the secondary piece. Doing it properly is what, what really matters. Um, and you know, we, are, we are beginning that process and, what, and we'd, we'd, we're doing our best. I'm sure there's further to go. But I think one of the ways in which we have our, brought our commissioners, who are very different from sort of political decision makers, but brought our commissioners into this, is that we took them along to some of the, fo- to the focus groups that we, that we held. They all went along to each one. And they all came back without exception, <coughs> talking about them as one of the most interesting and enlightening part of the process when Actually, it came to the decisions like, that, that they were going to make. And
4: politicians see, watch these things and see it, they, they realise the value. But it's getting and them to it in the first it, place or getting them a, willing to let it happen. And, and I always think
2: there is a strange yeah. dichotomy here that, that Stella may tell me is wrong, in that it always seems to me that politicians are very, very do not necessarily brilliant at this, but do do think in some of these terms when it comes to the establishment of their party's policy, the setting of the manifesto, the messages that they're using, nothing, nothing gets just developed through a, through an analytical process in the way that we do as, that, that we risk doing as civil servants, and then just sort of presented to the public. You test it, you, they, they, I think, test it, they try it out, there are focus groups, there is polling, you try and get it understand. And then, coming to government, and as ministers i've often found that it's very much what does the analysis say what's the bcr and then how am i going to protect this decision as we as we go forward so so i, I think there sh- there should be a way of bringing ministers more into more into this way of thinking but but that that's not my that's not my so sphere of expertise. That's a very good
4: point about reconnecting politicians with their inner their inner politician because they oft, so many people get into mm. politics to try and stop things happening. When I've when I've studied this at a local, you know, often people get into politics because they are unhappy about something, or they're at a, at, a, at a often at a local level originally in local government. So it's an interesting mm-hmm. interesting point. I can't.
3: I often of my head don't know what the current levels of trust are in Nice, but. Um, Certainly what we picked up over the years is that a bit, of, a bit of honesty, a bit of humility, a bit of compassion go a long way in generating trust and confidence in the organisation. To, for that, you've got to expose yourself to um, as much as you can, to uh, the public's views about what you're doing. There are ways in which you can do that, obviously through national media and so on. But, it's really interesting the way the public will respond, That even in circumstances in which you're making a really difficult decision and one that's not very palatable, that um, there's a much better response if you can expose yourself in that way, almost at a personal level, um, when the decision is made, try and explain and try and understand the nature of the consequences of that for the people who may not have wanted or would have wanted something else out of the Stella, so, you like
5: Yeah, so I think what's interesting about this conversation is one of the challenges is that obviously we are people within a process too, faced with difficult decisions and the fear that people might not like what we think. And that shapes how we engage in it and our presumptions about it. Uh, Tony, I think what's interesting to me about your question is one of the things I always worry about is a lot of our ways of engaging with people presume that people have only one view that they only think in terms of what will happen to them. They can't also hold a a, a corollary view about what might happen to their community, what the benefits, what the trade-offs are, that somehow the public aren't capable of the difficult decisions and the multiple scenarios that we have to look at in politics. That's not been my experience. And one of the things I worry about is often at a local level when you get people trying to put forward an idea, put forward an infrastructure project, and the kind of decide, announce, defend thing is they presume all objections are impermeable. Um, a great example of this in my local community. We've now got a group of people called Architects E17, who are local people who have expertise in building and design, who are trying to get involved in the way in which the local authority is dealing with development in our local community. And to be honest, they, they don't get a brilliant reaction, which is a real shame to me, because they're not coming saying, we don't want any development, we don't like any of this. They're saying, we want the best for our community, what might that look like? And they would be incredibly valuable champions for other people that even if there are some short-term trade-offs and i agree with you sometimes people are going to lose out sometimes the compulsory purchase order process just needs to be a lot fairer and a lot quicker for people but the same people who might be losing their homes are also you know it's not they don't care about what will happen next it's just the way we treat them is that that's the only binary important thing about them how then do you build trust that you don't make decisions you don't put up for grabs decisions that you've already made and there just needs to be more honesty about that as a starting point you also don't presume that all people can do is whinge. Actually, people have interesting insights and ideas and contributions to make about how a community is moving. HS2 is a great example of this, frankly, for me, because if we think about where HS2 started and our ideas about what kind of infrastructure this country needed and where we are now in terms of how people are working and the working week and where people might want to travel to, completely different. That's not been part of the process. You are right when you involve people. I think uh, what's been great with involve, and Tim is obviously here, is the citizens assemblies they've done on health and social care uh, in parliament, on uh, adult social care, have been really interesting in terms of people being part of the process. And that goes back to my first point as well. It's not just politicians who perhaps tend to generalize or be generalized about. It's civil servants and decision makers and all the people before you get to the politician, too, who presume this is going to be a difficult, awkward thing, so we've got to find a way for the minister to manage it. You know, we're, we're starting from the wrong end of the telescope. Actually, if you've got an infrastructure project that is going to make a big difference to this country, don't be frightened to work with people, but also to listen to their ideas about how you can improve it, because you might get a better answer than one that you started out with. Politicians and civil servants are not immune to the same challenges that the public have when these issues come to it It's just right now the way in which we make decisions seems to put one on one side and one on the other side and Some of these conversations I think reflect that you know just as some politicians are very involved in policy making, and maybe what I do is a bit different so other politicians are very passionate because frankly we are permanently in touch with the public, permanently conscious about the different choices, about how people might react, about the emotional content of it.
1: Don't blame the people, get a better process. Stella, thank you. I'd love to take another round of questions, but it has already gone half past, so I'm going to have to draw the event to a close. My apologies. Um, Thank you very much for a brilliant discussion. Thank you to APM, our sponsor. Thank you to a fantastic panel for a very lively discussion. And thank you for a brilliant, albeit short, set of questions. Um, Thank you very much.